Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. In recent months, the ad hoc Canada-China Committee in Parliament has taken a new turn, focusing not on Canada's relationship with China, but the rights of parliamentarians to see information, specifically classified intelligence. All of this started back in July 2019, when two scientists were mysteriously removed from their positions at the National Microbiology Lab. Canadians have never found out the reason why the scientists were removed from their position and subsequently fired. But after the emergence of COVID-19 brought about conspiracy theories about the virus and links between the two scientists, the National Microbiology Lab and the Wuhan Virology Institute became known, a parliamentary investigation into what happened has taken center stage in the Canada-China Committee's work. And it has become, to speak plainly, a hot mess. The story is long. But at the heart of the dispute is whether parliamentarians should have access to classified information relating to the firing of the two scientists and who knew what when. The Liberals have been arguing that the best place for this investigation is NSICOP, the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, a committee of parliamentarians with access to highly classified information that we will discuss a bit more on this podcast. And they have done everything that they possibly can to deny access to these documents to Parliament. Having been refused access to these documents, opposition parties, led by the Conservatives, have censured Public Health Agency of Canada officials and taken their complaints to Parliament generally, namely the Speaker of the House who ruled that, yes, Parliament can actually have access to the documents given centuries-old parliamentary privileges. And then suddenly the cameo that no one expected. The Public Health Agency of Canada announces that it cannot produce the documents because they are part of an ongoing national security investigation and they are protected by, surprise, the Canada Evidence Act. Now, we have often talked about all of these elements on the podcast, but never together and never in this way. And frankly, there's a lot to unpack in these issues, and we can't actually unpack it all because there's just so much. But we're dealing with a strange mix of elements, the powers of parliament, national security, intelligence, and what seems to be a lot of bad behavior by everyone involved. So joining me today on the podcast to talk about this is Intrepid Podcast team member Leah West and podcast favorite Phil Lagasse. Guys, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Okay, there's a lot to unpack, I think, even before we get into this. So let's do a parliamentary committee, committee of parliamentarians, section 38101 here for everyone to see what is at stake, how did we get here, and then we can maybe talk about the implications. So Leah, why don't we start off with this? One of the hearts of the debate is whether or not this information should go to the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians First, can you explain to everyone again what NSI COP is? Or NCCOP, depending on NCCOP. who you are. So it's a committee of parliamentarians comprised of sitting parliamentarians from both MPs and senators. It's a form of political review, and that should be contrasted with what we think of when we normally talk about review, which is external arm's length bodies. So this is parliamentary review. So it's got 11 security cleared members. Eight members of parliament, five from the government party, three from opposition parties, and three senators. The prime minister appoints everybody, but they do so in consultation with party leaders, not approval, but consultation. And ultimately, the governor and council that designates the chair of the committee. The committee doesn't vote for the chair. So it's basically the chair is picked uh, by the prime minister. And it has a pretty broad mandate, covers legislative, regulatory policy, administrative, financial frameworks of national security and intelligence, 
any activity carried out by the department that by any department that relates to national security intelligence, unless it's an ongoing operation and the relevant minister determines that looking into it would be injurious to national security and any matter related to national security intelligence referred to the committee by any minister. So that's really broad. Um, it's not limited to specific agencies or departments or certain operations and under the act, you know, does not limit NSI got to review of any specific department or agency. So it is a really broad remit. And to carry out their oversight functions or their review functions, members have the right to all under all information under the control of a department related to its mandate. That said, and this is where we're getting into the difference between parliamentary committee and committee of parliamentarians. NSICOP does not have the right to subpoena witnesses or documents, and witnesses do not have to testify under oath. Um, so those who testify are at risk of uh, perjury. And there's other limitations on information that NSICOP can have. Like it can't have stuff about ongoing criminal investigations. It can't have information about ongoing military operations if revealing that information would be dangerous. But that doesn't mean that they're prevented from ever having it after the risk to revealing that operational information is passed, then the minister has to go back to NSI COP and, and comply with their requests. So as you say, it's a big remit. It's not, it doesn't have unfettered access to all information, but relative to what we've had in the past, it actually has pretty substantial review powers. Uh, Leah, I just want you to address one myth that I think we've had, which is this idea that the prime minister controls what goes in the reports. We keep hearing this time and time again. My view is that it's false, but I think you might be able to put it a little bit more eloquent than I could, especially um, since I'd probably need swearing. So essentially, NSI COP uh, writes its reports, but they don't write their reports necessarily for the public. Right? They, they write their reports because they're reporting to parliament and to the prime minister about what they found. But in order to release those reports publicly so that the public has access to it, some of the information in it must be redacted. And it can only be redacted for uh, information that would be injurious to national security, defense, or foreign uh, affairs if it were to be released. And this is a threshold or a test we'll get back to when we talk about Section 38. It is quite well known that injurious to national security, foreign affairs, and defense is the standard kind of do not release line. And so ultimately, once the reports are created by an SI COP, they go back and are reviewed and it's managed centrally, but the agencies that have information involved would go back over the reports and say, this absolutely can't go up, out. And ultimately it's under the act, it's the prime minister that has to approve the final report that goes out to parliament. So yes, technically the prime minister is the one deciding what the final public version of the report looks like, but it's not on his own whim, and it's really based on the expertise of the security agencies whose information and knowledge about the impact of the threat is uh, considered, and they're the ones uh, requiring certain redactions, and it's ultimately the prime minister who then controls what is released. So this notion that information is redacted because it would be embarrassing, for example, or it would make the government look bad, any kind of redactions on that basis would be unlawful. And then NSI COP members would have a couple of different avenues 
to signal that that's happened, one of them would be to resign their positions. So yeah, I mean, it, technically, it's not wrong to say the prime minister has control. But in reality, um, that's not what's happening. Right, it's a little bit more complex. Now, I want to bring in Phil in here because I think we've hit the Phil bat signal like about 12 times in what you just said, particularly committee of parliament versus uh, parliamentary committee. This It sounds like it's the same thing. It's not. We've done this before on the podcast. But Phil, can you please give us some your, your take on explaining the difference between the two? Right. So where I'd start is, is it parliamentary review or is it review by parliamentarians? And I think that's the core kind of distinction that has to be made. So ultimately... Parliament is uh, a body composed of three things, the Queen, the Senate, and the House of Commons. It's the legislative power as laid out in the Constitution Act 1867. Uh, That act also provides that Parliament and the Houses of Parliament have certain powers, notably the power to produce documents, parliamentary privilege in terms of being free from external interference by courts, by other bodies in its proceedings, and also the ability to to call witnesses and to impose sanctions on those that are not compliant with uh, the orders of Parliament. So it's effectively, when you look at it historically and even today, It's a deliberative body that's on par with any other body within uh, the state. I'm not going to go as far as to say that it's sovereign in in the way that it is in the UK, but it certainly is on par with anything that the the executive power can claim, and as importantly, with the courts. And I think this is where it's going to be interesting when we get to our discussion of the Canada Evidence Act. Now, the Houses of Parliament are collective bodies, and as you might imagine, as a result of that, in order to perform their work effectively over time, they have delegated uh, a, a series of their activities to standing committees of Parliament, so to their subsets. And those committees, therefore, benefit from the powers of the Houses themselves. And we know that they are basically acting on behalf of the House in question because the House has created them. The members who sit on those committees sit on those committees in their function as parliamentarians, and they are therefore able to exercise powers related to calling of witnesses. Uh, They can ask the House through a motion to produce documents if certain bodies such as private bodies or the executive refuse. So all this entails that basically when you're doing parliamentary uh, review or when you're doing parliamentary scrutiny of the executive, it's a legislative function, right? What we've just heard about in a PSYCOP is an executive function. It is the members happen to be parliamentarians, right? But they are governor and council appointees. So that means that they are basically deputy minister level members of the executive. They are served by a secretariat, which is part of the executive. As Leia just said, the, the chair is chosen by the governor and council, so basically the prime minister. And even when we're going through our discussion of their powers and things like that, all of that is laid out in a legislative framework empowering an executive body. So as Leia said, when it comes to deciding what is ultimately found in the public report, this is provided rigorous review on the part of the intelligence community. And ultimately, that's what informs the prime minister's decision. So I think what's important to recognize here is that although it's, it's certainly not partisan in terms of what's decided, it's, we also have to bear in mind that it is a conversation in, involving the intelligence community. And I think that, that's where those, of the, those that have raised concerns, and I'm one of them, about how far we want to take 
this description of NSICOP as parliamentary is that it still involves a deep kind of, and this is by design, the concerns of the intelligence community necessarily come into what is the final public product, right? And this is where if you're going to be nefarious and you're going to start picking away at it, that's where you would go to say that this could be misused or abused by the government. So the, the essential distinction that I would make is simply to, to make the point that insofar as it is not a parliamentary committee, it does not benefit from the powers of parliament. It is not representing parliament, it is not acting as a subset of one of the houses of parliament. It is acting as uh, an independent review body within the executive appointed by the prime minister and working in cooperation with the intelligence community, not only in its reviews, but also in producing its final report. Now, this is the compromise that we've landed on, but it's, I think it's, as we'll get to in, in a minute, I hope, we can understand why when the opposition parties are able to use the full executive legislative power to undertake their accountability role, you, you're going to run into problems with a body like this, as we've seen. So I think that's really helpful. And I think to, to your point that you, know, you explained really well that you know, this committee of parliamentarians being part of the executive has access to classified information. Canada is weird. We don't have, to my knowledge, any parliamentary committee with access to classified information. And, and this is where we are. Where And you, Phil, you have been on the podcast before. You were on earlier this year, I think uh, back in February, March, where we talked about the fact that we don't have an ISC, where other democracies have parliamentarians serving in their role as parliamentarians, not as part of the executive to actually get access to information, classified information, so they can ask actually more challenging questions to military leaders, intelligence officials, and things like this, and, and to have better oversight of foreign policy generally. That's it. But because we've made this decision that we're still not sure about our intelligence culture in parliament, which could be a whole other episode, I think, that we, we don't have that. We, we do have some parliamentarians with clearance, but we don't allow them to access that powers as parliamentarians. Leah? Yeah, and but this was deliberate, right? And the, in the the debate and the, the, re, the review of the legislation, the NSICOP Act, as it was going through, this was the constant pushback from the opposition was this committee has less power than other committees of its same kind. And the bill sponsor, which is the public safety minister at the time, uh, Ralph Goodale, repeatedly said, that's why there's a sunset clause built into this act. And we will review how this is working. And there is a constant comparison to the United Kingdom where the, the ISC was established and it grew in terms of its powers and capabilities over time. So this idea that you build trust between the intelligence and the security apparatus and the parliamentarians and the parliamentarians and the public, that they can not use intelligence in a political fashion, you build that trust over time and therefore, there was never a promise that they would, NSICOP would become a, a, a parliamentary committee, but it was essentially that through time, through the establishment of that trust, you will get more powers and it would be more akin to what we see in other jurisdictions. So that was always the conversation at the time. And I think we're seeing the reason why there was hesitancy to create a full committee with a, par a parliamentary committee with these powers play out right now. Right. 
So I, I would echo all that. And I think that's uh, last point is, is quite important, namely that we're not the first country to start with this initial step, right? That the UK also started with this, this initial step and eventually they got to uh, a parliamentary committee. And overall, it's also important to note that the UK parliament and like the Australian parliament to, to some degree owing to its Senate, uh, just has a very different culture than ours in terms of uh, who sits, how long they sit, who takes on which roles, and and so on and so forth. So we may eventually get to the point where, where the UK did and create a full parliamentary committee. But further to the, some of the trade-offs that you, that you face when doing this, right, the extent to which you have the full secretariat, the full mandate laid out, right, there's a number of benefits that come with establishing it as an executive review body because you're able to delineate all these things and you're able to give it a precise mandate and so on and so forth. You can do that in, in statute as well, but it, it would be an awkward situation, right, where you, if you were to have an executive secretariat working for a parliamentary committee, like it would be a strange dynamic. Whereas in the current construct, you have a deputy head running the secretariat, uh, there's greater interaction between all the, the departments involved, right? So the, the relative departments now have basically feeder organizations, which are significant in size in order to provide NSI COP and NSI RRA with all the information and documentation they need. So would all that be in place if there was a parliamentary committee as opposed to a committee in parliamentarians? I'm not sure it would have gotten there as quickly, right? So in a sense, it's good to have gone through this initial step, but I, I would also point out that it, it's, it, it must be the natural evolution, I would argue. I mean, eventually, if you're going to take this seriously as actual parliamentary review, you need to, as I said, set up the trust, get people in that mindset and eventually get there. Are the we seeing thing- that though? <laughs> Well, I mean, and, this is pushing the conversation to where I wanted to go. Is like, yeah, but, uh, is no, any but think, of this okay? <laughs> yeah, but I think this is important, right? Because it's one of the things that, that I wrote in a blog post about this that the the members of NSICOP itself have not had any problems. They haven't leaked anything. They haven't acted in any untoward fashion, right? So the actual parliamentarians themselves. I mean, okay, we can leave aside. Tony Clement for a second. Anyway, that's a separate issue. I think we should, but, yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, you're going to, that's going to be a problem as we see with the former CDS. Anyway, I digress. So the, as we saw the, the, the members of NSI COP have acted as they are supposed to act. Where we're seeing maybe the trust breakdown is the expectation that these issues would rise above partisan politics. And honestly, I just don't understand how anybody thought that would happen, given the experience that we had with minority parliaments in the past, notably coming out of the Afghan detainee situation, how, and this is, I think, pie in the sky thinking that sudden, somehow this construct would work when the opposition was able to make full use of the powers of parliament. And that's where NSI COP works great in a majority situation where it provides a type of oversight that simply couldn't happen uh, in a parliamentary committee because the, the government majority would not allow it to happen. In a minority situation, however, it's not so much partisan politics that's coming into play as simply the reality of politics in a parliamentary setting. And as we've had this discussion numerous times now in different settings that we want parliament sometimes to be not political, but it's an inherently political body. Accountability is inherently political in our system. So it's, it's, 
it, where the breakdown is occurring, I think, is different conceptions of what proper behavior is. And the fact is that politicians will be politicians. Accountability will be political. The question that we have is, how do we contain that in such a way that it becomes uh, a system that, that can still work within the confines of national security and intelligence? And I think the problem that we have is NSICOP has demonstrated to us that individual members can act responsibly because they've been given that responsibility. I'm not sure we made that a full parliamentary committee. We would likely see the same behavior, particularly if we added in sanctions to this, because people tend to think that parliamentary privilege only empowers parliament or parliamentarians. It also empowers the houses to punish members who act inappropriately. And you see this in Australia, you see this in New Zealand. If a member of a committee discloses something that was told to them in camera, they get sanctioned by the house for it, right? So there are measures that we can take, right? But we, we need to get there. And it's, to my mind, though, the expectation that somehow parliament will develop a more responsible behavior or attitude towards national security without having any responsibilities doesn't work, right? The members on the NSI COP have demonstrated that they can but if you're going to make parliament, the houses of parliament more responsible in the national security space, you have to give them actual responsibilities in the national security space. But isn't it true? And just to be clear here, I mean, one of the major differences between Canada and the other systems you've discussed is that our level of partisanship is arguably higher. And I don't mean that in a negative connotation necessarily. I just meant that we tend to have a stricter view of what a confidence vote is. Like MPs very seldom vote against their own party. Whereas in the UK, you do see this a lot more. And, and I think you do see this in other Westminster style uh, parliamentary systems. So it's like, I, I guess what I'm saying is that I, I understand what you're saying from, from a, a paper perspective, but I also think like this is giving a puppy to a four-year-old that just happened to run over a sister with a tricycle. And I, I don't know if that's the best way to, to encourage responsibility. Well, I, I, I guess I'd push back a little bit on that. I mean, the Australian parliament- I should know got, Phil just got another puppy, so. <laughs> the, the Australian parliament is rough and tumble, right? It is, it's a nasty place, right? The confrontations that can occur. But in spite of that, right, they found a way to perform this in a very robust way because they take it seriously because they, they realize what the nature of it is. So they realize what the nature of the threat is. Part of the problem when you're dealing with parliamentarians in Canada is that they don't know what the, that the threat is serious. So why take, it's hard for them to take it seriously if they don't know what the threat is, right? This is, this is an underlying issue. And, and similarly in the UK, this is more diffuse across the system. So something that I find fascinating, for instance, is that the chair of the Public Accounts Committee has security clearance in order to be able to review the budgets of the intelligence agencies. Like even that's a small step we could take to demonstrate that this is the kind of thing that has to start happening if you're going to have an important legislature. Because what we're really stuck in, to be frank, from my perspective, is the Canadian perspective or the Canadian view that parliament is useless and parliament can't do its job that really we're totally comfortable with executive dominant government, but you're never gonna get a, more, a, a stronger parliament if you never actually empower it, right? It, you, you never, until you exercise that muscle, it's, it's always gonna be weak. And I know that takes, it's a really hard first step, right? But to, does, to that, does this have to be done by trashing NSI cop? 
Well, no, I mean, but uh, I, I think this is, I, I, I don't feel I'm trashing it, right? I mean, and maybe the, op- the opposition. Not, again, not you, but I, I yeah. just feel that like the way to get there is running over NSI cop with that tricycle. Yeah. And this, and look, this was the risk, right? It was, I mean, Leah would know this more, but how many parliamentary experts were part of this, these hearings when the thing was set up? As far as I can tell, it was a bunch of national security people talking to a bunch of national security people. And I, no, I was there. No parliamentarian. <laughs> if you were to, if you had. Stop making in, me feel bad, Phil. No, I mean, and there's certain senior members of the academic national security community, I won't name their names, who are, think they're experts in everything. And they think they know parliament. Well, guess what? You don't. Talk to some parliamentary experts. Talk, talk to people doing, working at the intersection of parliament and national security. You know, because when, when I was writing about this at the time, people were like, oh, no, it's not going to happen. I'm like, it won't be a problem in a minority parliament. How do you know that? Like, what, what's, your, what's your background to be working in that? Like, you, it, this is clear to anybody that, that studies kind of parliaments, <laughs> right, as opposed to national security. So this ended up being a conversation amongst national security people about what to do with parliament. And then when parliament acted like parliament, they're like, oh, why is it acting like parliament? That's so weird. I, I, I feel attacked. So I'm going to move on. Leah, before we move on to the, the Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act, which is just completely insane that all of we've talked about parliament before, we've talked about national security, we've talked about Section 38, we've never talked about them together. Here we are. So Leah, while I'm, my feelings are recovering, could you please maybe <laughs> talk about your take on what we've seen? So I entirely agree with Phil. You won't have responsible parliament without responsibility. I also agree that parliamentary history (laughs) um, and procedures was not at the forefront of the conversations at the time, having reviewed every stitch of Hansard having to do with this act in the past. And I agree. I was, I wasn't an academic at the time. I was in, in department of justice, but I was in the department of justice reviewing the procedures of this act with an eye to national security. And it was not on my radar. So I will say that I agree with Phil entirely. However, I also agree with Stephanie that I, I do hold our elected officials to a higher standard when the matters are of national security. I, I want to believe that they can be more mature and less partisan when the issues are of such a nature that they do, there is a risk to national security when we politicize intelligence. And, and I don't agree that diminishing NSI COP and, and suggesting that it is something that it's not is the way to move forward. I agree that there can be discussions about the inefficiencies of NSI COP to review the matter and that they believe that this issue is one of such public importance that it demands parliamentary review rather than review by parliamentarians. That is not a conversation I I have a problem with, but the degrading NSI COP and as such degrading the public trust in NSI COP in what it produces, because it has produced some really solid work. We can debate its findings, but I think it has been nonpartisan and it it has provided useful documentation for Canadian public. 
that to me is where I have a big problem is we don't need to push down NSI COP to argue that parliamentary committee would be a better place to discuss these issues. And I, I just hate to see NSI COP degraded in the minds of the public and then potentially it's used to future governments if they're not liberal governments because of the debate that's happening now. Yeah, and I'd agree with that. I guess my, my two cents would be, yeah, you also have to put it within the larger context of what, what's been happening over the past 18 months. I mean, let's be frank here. I mean, the, the way that executive legislative relations has played out has not been pretty. Constant stifling of committees. That's a pro- huge point. Yes. Prorogations and hardball on, on, on the both parts, right? constant hardball and and i'm not gonna put my blame on anybody because everybody's acting irresponsibly the government is saying stuff that is simply false right in a lot of cases about who's allowed to uh, appear before committee the opposition is making wild claims like they're just they're feeding off one another when it comes to this right they're they're just everybody's escalating so it didn't need to get there and the the, obviously the pandemic parliament situation uh, did not help and I fully agree that there's, it, it makes no sense to denigrate NSI COP. It hasn't been helpful. It has produced important and good work. And I agree with both of you that denigrating NSI COP is not the right path towards making this a parliamentary committee. You actually have to accentuate the fact that it has done good work and the members on it have been responsible. Right. And you're saying based on this experiment, this initial experiment, we think we can now move forward. And has now occurred, I, th- I agree with both of you as well, that this current kerfuffle is likely undermining the faith in the national security community and the ability of parliamentarians to act responsibly. So it has not been a good episode. Right. But my, my point is you have to sometimes be bold. We're not good at bold in this country. Bold isn't what we do. But you got to eventually be bold to, to, to move ahead with this. And just a, one last point that I'll make in terms of a Canadian context, like we also have to get over this, na- this notion that there's two interwoven na- notions. First, that Canadian secrets are super special secret, like every other, like the amount, the number of leaks coming out of the US Congress, the Belgian parliament, the French parliament. I mean, it, it's a little exhausting to have this notion that somehow we would be, our, our secrets are, are of such magnitude right? That even our other Five Eyes allies have figured out ways of dealing with this, but ours are just not. I mean, it's just part of a conversation in Canada, and we see this with access to information generally, that we're not transparent. We're just not. We're terrible at it. And I don't feel, I don't, I don't think anyone's like would challenge you on transparency and things like this. My worry is not leaking our secrets. My worry is leaking other countries' secrets. Yeah, no. And I agree with you, Steph. It's not that to my mind, it's, it's just part of this conversation also has to come to grips with the fact that it's not as if other countries don't deal with these challenges. Right. And they deal with them all the time. Right. Like, I'll just give a, a, a perfect example of this because I'm writing about it now in this book. We had the in 2017, the resignation of the French chief of the defense staff, first time in the fifth in the French Fifth Republic, because he said something to a parliamentary committee and then it was leaked. Like this stuff happens. There are ways to, to deal with it, but we also have to. And, you know, Leia's discussed this in other realms as well the idea that we can somehow set up something perfect that won't have errors is wrong, right? We need to accept and figure out ways to mitigate those errors. And it's going to be the same in the parliamentary context if we move forward. 
So I want to move this on to what has happened. Okay, so we had this kerfuffle. Basically, the MPs demanded to see the intelligence. It didn't happen. They then took it to the Speaker of the House of Commons, who then ruled that, yes, actually, Parliament does have the right to see this information and demanded the documents come over. They went to the, I believe, Deputy Minister PHAC, the Public Health Agency of Canada, who was then, I, I believe it was that was the individual that was publicly reprimanded in Parliament the first time that's happened in, I don't know, a century. It, it, it felt very old timey. I felt like everyone should have like mustaches or something when that happens. So now we're at a point though, where basically they're demanding the documents and the liberal government's response is the section 38 Canada Evidence Act. Surprise appearance. It's like the character that pops in, <laughs> the surprise crossover character that pops in the, the, the weird episode of the, the bizarre national security series we have. So if... Based on all that, Leah, can you walk us through just briefly again the Section 38 Canada Evidence Act and how that does or perhaps even doesn't apply here? And then I think Phil has views on this too. Yeah, I think the question is it, it's unsettled as to whether it does or does not apply here. So Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act is a privilege, a legislative privilege, that basically says that if anyone, any participant in a proceeding, and proceeding is the key term here, believes or is required to disclose information or believes information is about to be disclosed in a proceeding, that if it were to be, be released, could be injurious, could be, to Canadian national defense, international affairs, or national security, they must notify the attorney general. Uh, at that point, and the information, once the attorney general is notified, cannot be disclosed. Importantly, what types of situations where notice must be and cannot be given is all laid out in statute, right? There is specific ex exceptions as to when it does not apply, right? Parliamentary proceedings is not included in that list. Once the attorney general is notified and the information is not disclosed, a bunch of different things can happen. The AG can work it out with the participants to figure out what can, cannot be disclosed. You can get all kinds of different arrangements about how information will or will not be disclosed. But ultimately, if information that has to be disclosed based on some sort of legal requirement, so usually we think about it in the criminal law context as Stinchcombe disclosure, or in this case, because it's been compelled by parliament, that that information, if it's not going to be disclosed based on section 38, the attorney general files an application with the federal court. And then it's up for the federal court to decide whether or not that information will or will not be disclosed based on a three-part test. So first the information, the, the, the judge has to decide whether the information is relevant to the underlying proceeding. Next, the judge has to decide if its release would be injurious to national security defense or international affairs. And then the judge weighs the public interest versus the national security interests in determining what is and is not disclosed. And that can be done in a variety of different ways. It can be done in summaries, certain things redacted, entire judgments withheld, yada, yada, yada. So that's the, the process. So what's been done here is that I guess PHAC went to the attorney general and said, this information falls under section 38. If I, with, if I comply with this order to compel these documents, right, I'll be in violation of section 38. So the attorney general was given notice 
And now the attorney general, as I understand it, based on reporting, I haven't seen the actual application, has applied to the federal court to not disclose uh, the information to the parliamentary committee. The legal debate that is about to ensue, because experts in parliamentary law are saying that this privilege of the parliamentary committee to compel documents exists on its own within the constitution. But privileges can be supplanted by statute. And the question will be, in my opinion, under the Canada Evidence Act, whether or not the definition of proceeding under section 38 includes parliamentary proceedings. It is a defined term in the act and it means a proceeding before a court person or body with jurisdiction to compel the production of information. And so there is Supreme Court jurisprudence that looks at how acts can supplant parliamentary privileges. And there is cases where courts, the Supreme Court has found that certain acts apply to parliament despite parliamentary privilege. And so I think the fight will ultimately come down to not whether or not the privilege exists, right? It's very clear that parliament has the privilege that it, it's trying to enforce, but whether or not Canada Evidence Act supplants that privilege in the case of information that if it's disclosed would be injurious. And I think that's the legal battle that ultimately will unfold whenever a federal court judge is as tasked with hearing this case. Thank you for that summary. That's actually, that's very, very useful. And as particularly the preceding question, which is really, really interesting. I mean, like I said, I only had ever heard of this in uh, some kind of nightmare terrorism case that we've talked about on this podcast. So it's really interesting to hear this. Yeah, actually, in Wang case as well, actually. So espionage. Section 38 is applied in all kinds of proceedings. Really? In civil litigation, right? Like, for example, I'm just making up a hypothetical, but say a human source gets in a car accident or a CSIS officer gets in a car accident and uses a fake name, right? And you don't want to disclose their real name in the insurance litigation, right? Like section 38 can come up in all kinds of situations. And the notice of even making that disclosure is something that is, is protected under the act. So we don't hear about it in a lot of cases because it doesn't actually have an impact in a lot of situations. Um, it, but it does have an impact when we're talking about how, whether that information is going to prove the case. And there's also a parallel proceeding called Section 87 that's done under Immigration Act. So this type of proceeding happens quite a lot in, in all different kinds of contexts. But to my understanding, it's never tried to be applied to a parliamentary proceeding in the past. That's fascinating. I, again, like I just, this, this whole thing's blowing my mind, but that's super useful. Phil, do you have views on whether or not, you, you hinted at it early, in one of your earlier discussions, I was going to say rants, but I'll be polite here about the powers of parliament versus the power of the courts. You describe them as equal. So is that, what's your take on this? Right. Well, I mean, fundamentally, the the purpose of parliamentary privilege is to ensure that parliament can fulfill its function, but also is is self-governing. As Leah said, parliament does have the, the power through legislation to abridge its own privileges. The question becomes, how explicit does it need to be when it does so? And I think it's quite interesting because we're talking about NSICOP. When you look at the NSICOP Act, Section 12.1 of the NSICOP Act, the drafters felt it necessary to be very specific, right, in the case of the members of NSICOP, that their parliamentary privilege did not 
extend to immunity of disclosure of information that they learned as, as members. And this is actually also finding its way before the court. So I, I would be my starting position as a more of an institutional kind of perspective, as opposed to a constitutional law perspective, is I find it highly unlikely that parliament is binding itself without express language to that effect, right? Or by, without necessary implication. And it's, we also don't really, as Leah said, we don't have any evidence that this has ever been thought of in these terms. So the Afghan detainee case wouldn't have, you know, brought that up as, as clearly. And you would have thought that that, if that was the purpose, that it would have come up at some other point in time. Looking at it more broadly, ultimately it's to my mind, it would go, what would you do in, in extreme cases like whistleblowers and others that need parliament in order to be able to have that exact safe area in order to disclose, right? And you can make a fine distinction between there's a difference between an individual disclosing things that they shouldn't as an individual in a parliamentary setting in order to avoid prosecution. And that's maybe that's different than the Canada Evidence Act. But my, I anticipate that it's going to be difficult to, to argue that Parliament has waved away in without express language its ability to demand documents covering a wide gamut. And we saw this when it came to the speaker's ruling. The parliamentary perspective is that it's absolute. And I'm not going to say the courts are going to agree with that. It would take us down a very interesting path if they don't, right? Because again, fundamentally, and now I'm going to bring in the pragmatic perspective, legislation is drafted by the executive in Canada for the most part. And basically what you're saying is that even though they're not using express language, governments can, can craftily put together laws, get them through parliament during a majority that basically makes them less accountable. And I mean, given already the, the truncated and weakened role of parliament generally in our system, I think that would be a pretty big step back if that's what's found. Yeah, I'll just add that like the act does get pretty specific on what entities are precluded from the privilege. So there's actually a schedule that lists out a variety of entities like the privacy commissioner in, in certain instances. It, it's not just which agency, it's which agency and for what purpose. Interestingly enough, NSICOP is not on that list. And when you look at the act in general where it does exclude specific organizations or certain proceedings or certain issues, there's no obvious um, indication here on my reading that there was any thought given to the application of parliamentary committee. So the alternative to that is that uh, drafters, legislative drafters, are presumed to know everything when they draft legislation. So it is presumed that they would know that this a proceeding would also include parliamentary committees. And the fact that they didn't mention anything about it was because it was obvious that it would. So that there are contrasting arguments. The other argument is that if parliament was going to take away one of its privileges, it would do so very explicitly. And it has not done so here. We see that when we're talking about crown immunity, for example. So I think there are arguments on both sides. Um, it'll be come down to this, the strength of the legal uh, arguments from the parties, I think, moving forward. I haven't done enough research to have a good solid understanding of how this will play out. But I do think that there are arguments on both sides here and it will be an interesting legal case from, from that perspective. I'll just quickly put on my prerogative, crown prerogative hat for a second to say that 
parliamentary privilege in a sense is kind of mirrored to those powers, right? And you would, I would presume, or I would argue that you would want to have the same kind of basic principles apply. So the crown typically doesn't lose its prerogative unless it's stated clearly in legislation. And in a Canadian case in particular, we don't tend to do that. And we've seen the effects of that, right? That acts that we would think do bind the crown ultimately don't. I would, it would be an even greater damnation, I would argue, of the Canadian parliament if we start arguing that parliament actually has fewer protections for its constitutional powers in, in terms of the relationship with legislation than the crown has for its common law powers, right? It's, that would really just demonstrate, particularly when you contrast it with what's been going on in the UK over the past few years, that we really are an executive dominant system in so many ways as compared to our, our other sister systems. So this has been a really interesting podcast. It's been a little bit nerdy. We're completely in the weeds here. I, I think it's really disappointing in some ways, just as you say, like there's there's not one side here that I really feel comfortable supporting because on the one hand, the liberals have just been absolutely trashing committees, whether it's the ones on defense dealing with sexual assaults in the military, the way the fact that this information that they're trying to hide was originally described as a privacy issue. Now it's a national security issue. Their whole attitude here has been very bad. I'm upset at the kind of trashing of NSI cop as a way to make points on. And if we get back to this point, this was a committee that's supposed to be looking at Canada, China relations, right? A very important topic. I was really supportive of the this committee when it came out. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to get behind this. And, and a lot of people were rolling their eyes saying Parliament does a bad job on foreign affairs. And here we are, we've turned it into a constitutional crisis. Like, great job, everyone. Like, big, big, big applause. And that's, of course, sar- that's podcast sarcasm for, for those that are out there. But yeah, I mean, the, then the final question is, is this a moot point even? Because there's this wild speculation, and maybe not so wild, that there's actually an election coming in the fall. So what happens to these questions if in October, all of a sudden, Prime Minister Trudeau, without his beard, is now going to be calling an election? Well, I agree with you that effectively, this is in all likelihood a delaying tactic. I'm not sure the government fully buys its argument when it comes to Section 38, but it's a great way to stall this until such time as Parliament is dissolved, then the motion for the documents falls apart, you get a new speaker, you come back, and uh, the point become moot, becomes moot, and it becomes an academic question again until the next minority parliament. And hopefully by then, we've dealt with this either through an amendment to the Canada Evidence Act, an amendment to the NSI GOP Act, or some other method uh, of dealing with this to ensure that next time this kind of issue comes up, we know what the, the rules actually are. Leah, what's your take on this as we come to the end here? I do believe it is a can-kicking exercise, and I think that was revealed very clearly when the Attorney General or whomever it was that sent this letter to the Speaker suggested that somebody might be appointed to help, I think, uh, Parliamentary Secretary redact the documents, which is not how the Section 38 process works, and I think was just, again, goes against this belief that Section 38 is the appropriate tool here, as opposed to a can-kicking exercise. So, but that's not uncommon that we've seen that from this government time and time again, especially on issues of security and international relations. Why deal with the hard stuff if you can just kick it down the road? So yeah, I'm disappointed. I, I, this, I think that this episode represents the worst of all of 
the issues that we have in Canada around national security accountability, parliamentary accountability, executive um, accountability, and partisanship when it comes to national security. It's just really disappointing. And I don't think there are any heroes in this in this case. Well, there you have it. This is why we can't have nice things. And But we do have nice things in the sense that you guys came on the podcast today. That was nice. And I appreciate your insight as always. I'm, I wonder if we're going to be coming back to visit this issue. I think we should just to, to see what the fallout, if any, was. I mean, Leah, you raised the issue, the other issue we haven't even got to yet, which is who in parliament can actually help redact information. That position doesn't exist. That's going to be a whole other thing. But you know what? Thanks, guys. Let's leave it there. And we'll see what happens, if anything, over the summer. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Steph.